pray and reorient our hearts towards the passage that Jen just read for us. God, we thank you for this account you've given to us of Stephen's speech and the truth about our rebellious hearts and the wonder of your grace that it communicates. We ask this morning, I ask for myself this morning, God, that you would just open my heart up to receive the message of your grace. For everyone here in person or online, God, I ask that you would just remove distractions. I ask that you would help them to see the arrogance in their own heart and that your grace would break through and they would worship in wonder at the beauty of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we're gonna start in a way we don't always do. We're gonna start with a game. Everybody likes a game, right? A game of name that pastor. Didn't see this one coming, did you? All right, so what we'll do, I'll explain the rules to this. I'm gonna show a zoomed-in picture on the screen, and then you have to guess which pastor it is, and you need to verbally say out loud who you think it is. All right, so let's get the first one up there. Ooh, zoomed in. Eyeball, maybe a hat. Who do you think it is? So let's hear, who is that one? All right, let's, let's see, let's see who is that. Oh, that's Pastor Jared. Sorry, I pulled a bait and switch on you. It's actually a photo mosaic. I didn't include that part. So, so what you had before was actually a zoomed-in photo of one of the little photos that makes up the nearly 300 photos that show us Pastor Jared there. See, appearances aren't what you think they are these days, are they? All right, so let's, let's try this again. Now you know how the game works, really. Who do you think might have a yellow shirt and maybe a beard and a zoomed-in picture of another picture? Which pastor do you think it is? Pastor Eddie? Ding, 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 we have a winner. All right, so we're one for two. You know how the game works. I've given you a little bit of help, but let, let's try a third one and see if you can stay above 500 here. Nice zoomed-in shot of the ear. That's certainly flattering. Um, who, who do you think this might be? Let me hear you. Steve Bush, maybe I hear. All right, let's check it out. Oh, it's almost all of them at the Ferguson's commissioning service. Sorry, I didn't hear anybody say all of them. So it's a fun, rousing game of name that pastor. Justin, this is a strange start to a sermon on Stephen's speech. I didn't see this coming. Where are we going with this, you wonder? Well, here's where we're going with it. When you zoom in far enough, you can miss the bigger picture and what's really going on. Right? And you saw it, and you're like, Justin, that's not really fair. You can't zoom in that far because there's no way I would know what's going on. Well, good. You, you got the point I wanted you to make. You, you missed the forest for the trees. Right? You, can't, you can't see the whole thing. And what we find in Stephen's speech is religious leaders that had zoomed in so far on tiny little parts of the Bible that they'd missed the whole thing. They'd zoomed in so far that they'd, they'd missed the whole thing. The, the religious leaders thought the Bible was about them and what they needed to do for God, and they had not been able to zoom out and see the whole Bible was about Jesus and the message of grace that he was bringing. And so, so what we need to make sure we do is that we see the details, but we don't get so far zoomed in that we actually miss the whole picture of what's going on there, right? Jesus would speak to this and help us to understand the way the whole Bible's supposed to fit together. On the screen, you should see John 5, 39, where Jesus would say to the leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
words, you zoom in so far on this part of the Bible, that part, and, and this historical artifact, and this thing, and that thing, that you miss the whole thing is about Jesus and his grace. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, we would read a, a similar account. We read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that being Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, so when we zoom in and we miss the forest for the trees, we miss what we're supposed to see. And in the case of the Bible, this is what the religious leaders in Stephen's day did. But here's the thing. Their mistake is not unique to them. It's actually a mistake that's hardwired into every human heart. And so if you were to take Stephen's speech as long as it is, and I appreciate you bearing with us in a, in a long reading, it's the most important words you'll hear all day, not the ones I have to say, but the ones from the scripture. If you take that whole thing and boil it down to a sentence, it might be something like this. See it on the screen. All people arrogantly resist the Bible's central message of grace. All people arrogantly resist the Bible's central message of grace. And this, of course, is what we'll unpack today. And you might hear me say, like, wow, Justin, that's, that's not a rosy outlook for the next 30, 40 minutes for us here. Like, well, it's, it's true. It's not that rosy. And, and you might hear me say that and think, is it really that bad, Justin? Is the human condition so dire? And, and I would suggest to you that it is. <laughs> I hope to show that from the scriptures, that we're continually finding our identity in the things that we can do with our own hands and not what God has done for us in his grace. Somebody else might hear that phrase, all people arrogantly resist the Bible's central message of grace and think, oh yeah, I, know, I definitely know somebody like that. Oh, yeah, I know some arrogant person. I know someone who resists God's grace. And, and church, can I just remind you of something you already deeply know? D don't listen to a sermon that way. <laughs> don't, don't listen for somebody besides yourself in front of you or behind you or to the side or somebody not here. Like, no, no, no. All people means all people and that means you. And so listen and ask God to show you, how is this true in my life and where do I need the message of grace to break through? So our outline will be um, as simple as I can make it, because I, I like simple, is we're just gonna chop the sentence in half. And so the, the first point is all people arrogantly resist, and then the second point will be the Bible's central message of grace, and, and just kind of walk through. All right, so all people arrogantly resist. Where do we see this first off in Stephen's speech, Acts 7? Let's look towards the end of it and then kind of work our way backwards. So Acts 7, look at verse 51. You kind of catch the, the tip of the spear here, the point of what Stephen is saying. Verse 51, we read, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. See, Stephen says, you people are, are arrogant, you resist the Holy Spirit, and it's not just something you do. Your fathers, for generations upon generations, all people do this. It's what you've been doing. So if we're here this morning and we think that we're the exception, that's one way of saying we're the ones who have been duped. We're not the exception to the rule. All right? Look a little bit further back, Acts 7, 41. We see this said in a little bit different way. Acts 7, 41, Stephen says, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. That's what we would do. We rejoice in the work of our hands. We resist what God has done, the message of grace, and we rejoice in what we've done that we think gives us favor and merit with him. And this isn't just a, a story we see in Acts 7. This is actually the story of the whole Bible. Right, so you go to the, back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, we see the exact same thing being said. Verse 6, we read, 
all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every single one to his own way. It's what everybody does. Or you jump ahead to the New Testament, Romans 3, 10 and 11. We read, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So this is all of us. This is all of our story. Right? And so, so Stephen is, is speaking against these people and kind of indicting them. But they were the ones actually that kickstarted the whole process by bringing charges against Stephen. All right, so let's, let's take a look at what uh, the charges were against Stephen, and that gives a framework for understanding his speech and his response to them. Does that sound good? Look back at Acts 6 now. Turn over to verse 13. Here's where we catch the charges against Stephen. We read Acts 6, 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that is the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So, so the charge is Stephen is, is messing with the temple and with the law of Moses. But that's the two things. You think, okay, what, what does this have to do with us today? Like, we don't have the temple. No one's suggesting we need to obey all of the law of Moses. If you hear what the original audience would have heard in that, it'll make a little more sense. So when they hear the law of Moses, they're hearing instructions in right living. So Stephen, you're coming and you're changing all the instructions in right living. And you say, okay, now that makes sense to me. If you change the instructions in right living, that's a problem. You can't change morality. And then you jump over to the temple. What, what would happen at the temple? The temple is where forgiveness of sins took place, where sins were atoned for through the sacrifices. She's saying, Stephen, you're not only changing instructions in right living, but also you're changing how sins are forgiven. And what else happens in the temple? It's where the presence of God is experienced. So in essence, they're saying to Stephen, Stephen, you're changing morality, instructions in right living, and you're changing how forgiveness of sin is received, and you're changing how the presence of God is experienced. That's a big deal, Stephen. Don't do that. Maybe that starts to make a little more sense of why they were so angry. Start to see the whole picture there. Um, now, for us today, it sort of makes sense maybe that, that right living is important and that forgiveness and second chances is important. Like, yeah, I see how those are necessary. But there's a lot of people around who might say, getting to the presence of God is not something that all people are doing today. And I might suggest that while you wouldn't use those words per se, that Brownsburg is Indiana is filled with people trying to get to the presence of God. They just define it as their own functional heaven, their own functional paradise, right? Where, where it's a certain status, if I can drive this car or move into that house, then that would be paradise. Then, I, then my soul could rest. If a certain relationship, if, if this boy or that girl would, would just pay a little bit of attention to me, that would be heaven on earth. There's all kinds of country songs about that, are there not? It just goes on and on and on. You could quote dozens of them, and so we won't even do one. Maybe you think of this more in your investment portfolio. You watch the markets rise, and when you get really stressed, you can go back and look at that. Or, or maybe you, you didn't invest in crypto seven years ago, and you think, man, if I just would have put a couple thousand bucks in, then my soul could really rest easily knowing that I had that security blanket. So we may not define the presence of God as first century Jews would as being the temple, 
But we've all got these functional heavens, functional paradises that we are working towards where we can rejoice in the work of our hands. And we're really not that different than the first century religious leaders when you get to the heart of it. All right? What I want to do here is, is dig in just a little bit more to these charges and, and these realities, and I want us to see how incredibly relevant they are to life in 2021 in Brownsburg, Indiana, both for, for religious people and for secular people, for all people. It's important for us. All right, so let me put on a little bit of teacher hat here, and we're going to use a chart on the screen. I just want to walk through a few things, okay, and kind of lay this out, and hopefully as you see this, it'll make sense, and then we can, we can really preach our way through it. So down the left, you see this, these columns, or rows rather, where you see righteousness, i.e. the law of Moses, the presence of God and forgiveness coming from the view of the temple, and then ultimately have these which show a deficient view of sin. And what we'll do is across the top, we'll have some columns that'll show the first century religious leaders, and then for secular and religious people, how this manifests itself in different ways. All right, so just stick with me a little bit while I've got my teacher hat on here, okay? So the first, first column, Acts 6 and 7 religious leaders, righteousness, right living, was obedience to the Mosaic law and the customs. The presence of God was through the temple that they built. Notice it was that they built with the emphasis there, rejoicing in the work of their hands. Forgiveness was through their temple sacrifices, that we offer sacrifices in the right way, and so we can be proud of ourselves. And the deficient view of sin, of course, then, is that they wanted to trust in their own work, not in God's work. All people arrogantly resist the Bible's central message of grace. Let's move to some more uh, modern cultures and how we talk about this, right? So you might see secular wokeism. I know it's a, not a very technical term, but I think you all know what I'm talking about there, where righteousness and right living is seen as the overthrow of all oppressors. And the presence of God, the heaven on earth, the paradise, the utopia is realized when there's a complete overthrow of all power structures. And sadly, in this system, forgiveness doesn't exist. The deficient view of sin is that it sees the sins of others, how somebody else is an oppressor, but it never sees the sin of yourself, how you might be an oppressor. A good example of this, of seeing how forgiveness doesn't exist in this system, might be the life of Martina Navratilova, famous female tennis player, maybe the greatest tennis player of all time, 1975, 18 years old, she flees the communist bloc of Czechoslovakia, makes to the U.S., and kind of overthrows this oppressive system, like I finally have escaped and I've made a name for myself. In the mid-80s, Martina is one of the only famous athletes leading an LGBTQ lifestyle who's in the mainstream and open about it. In 1981, she hires a transgender coach to be her tennis coach. She's at the forefront of this progressive movement to overthrow the power structures that exist, right? And yet more recently, she got on Twitter and, and only asked a question about how a trans woman, a man who wanted to transition to become a woman, could fairly and equitably participate in the Olympics. What's, what's fair? How do we think about this? It's kind of a significant question in modern sports culture. And by merely asking the question of what's equitable here, and maybe some things might be out of bounds, she's branded by the people that are further left of her as transphobic, a hater of trans persons, and somebody who should be publicly shamed and ridiculed for life. So she can't run left fast enough, and she can't apologize enough. The deed has been done. There's no forgiveness available to her. Get out of here, they say. And if it could happen to her, it could happen to anybody. There's no forgiveness, it's sad. Look at the, the next system, secular individualism that says, be true to yourself. 
That's what right living is. And the presence of God is through liberation from externally imposed rules. Maybe you think of the movie Frozen here and the, the line from the, the kind of the theme song. It's, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Do you hear that? Maybe you're singing it. I see you out there, a few of you. Um, now, similarly, in this system, forgiveness also doesn't exist. And the deficient view of sin is that you fail to meet the standards that you set for yourself, because, of course, any external standard must be rejected. Sadly, you see this lack of forgiveness being spoken of in the quote that uh, Pastor Chris shared from Madonna a few weeks ago. Look back up on the screen, and I think you'll hear this in what she says. She says, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me. It's pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Isn't that sad? If I don't measure up, if I don't prove it myself, if I don't meet the standards I've set, there's no forgiveness. It'll never end. I'm my only hope. See, what happened to the first century religious leaders happens to all people. It happens to secular people in our, our present age. But it's not just secular people. It's religious people too. So let's keep going across the, um, the slides here. In liberal Christianity, you see that righteousness is through keeping the social justice rules. And there, there are many of them. And the presence of God is then achieved, or the paradise, the heaven on earth is realized when you've reformed all social structures and achieved shalom, peace on earth. Forgiveness technically exists, but more payment is always required. This is sort of where you start to see arguments towards reparations work their way into the idea. Like, yes, you can be forgiven, but yes, you've always got to pay more. Right? And then the deficient view of sin is that it only sees bad systems, systemic injustices or racism and so forth, but not bad people underneath the systems. That makes sense. The last column speaks to conservative Christianity, which I, I want to differentiate from biblical Christianity. Here, righteousness is through keeping the holiness rules. Right? Or maybe you grew up and you say, we're not allowed to, to play cards or to dance or go to the theaters or drink alcohol or, or this and that. And that's where righteousness is achieved. And so the presence of God is mediated by a higher level of personal holiness. You, you might hear that and think, Justin, is that really what people say? That's how the presence of God comes? Well, think back to the, the song that maybe you learned as a child, Trust and Obey. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. Do you hear that? As long as I'm doing good, then God's abiding with me. Friend, can I just tell you that if you're in Christ, your obedience, your keeping the holiness rules is not what keeps God abiding with you. It's his grace. Amen? Forgiveness then, in conservative Christianity, is that you clean up your act first. The deficient view of sin is that it only sees bad actions, not the motives or the desires under the actions. Right? And so, so you might experience this, it might manifest it in your life where, where you start to feel like you can't come to church on a Sunday morning if maybe you got drunk on Saturday night or you had an intense family argument over Sunday morning breakfast. You're like, ah, I just, I'm not put together. I can't go to church. I've got to keep the rules to go be in the presence of God and his people. Certainly this is the story we'd like to tell on our Instagram and Facebook feeds, right? See how everything's going well, keep the mask on, 
present the, the best picture of myself through the best filter so that everybody can see that I'm keeping all the rules here. Maybe I could illustrate this a little bit differently. Um, the first house Emily and I owned, uh, we had issues getting the heat to get back to the master bedroom. It was always cold. And so we brought a guy out, and he looked at the furnace, and I uh, said the furnace was fine, no issues there. And we got up in the attic and looked at the ductwork and found there was actually um, quite a few problems with the ductwork. So we fixed that up. So the furnace is working good, and the ductwork is now fixed. And we go back to our room, and our room is still really cold. Give it a couple days, it's not warming up. What's going on here? So my, my father-in-law comes over, and we're looking at it together, trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And he reaches up, and there's this vent in the ceiling, and he pulls it out. And to our shock, inside the vent are layers of foil, literally blocking the heat from getting to our room. Now, I was absolutely bewildered, and I still am in many ways, at what in the world was going on here, how this happened. Um, here's how we ought to be seeing this. Here's how we ought to be seeing it. The heat in our room was available to us, but we had a blocker there that was keeping us from experiencing it. And similarly, the grace of God is available to you right where you're at right now before you keep any of the rules. And what you've got to do and what I've got to do is, is recognize that my arrogant, rebellious heart is in the way. It is the tinfoil that's blocking the heat, the grace of God from coming to my life. I just confess my rebellion is what is blocking, God, your grace from getting to my heart right now. It's there, it's available for you right now. And I've just gotta pull myself out of the way and say, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place with your grace. It's not you picking up your master bedroom and getting closer to the heater. <laughs> That's impossible. Yet when it comes to our own lives and our morality, sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking it is possible. It's the grace of God that breaks through and then that changes and warms our heart to actually want to follow Jesus. You see, we're like a house that's designed to be heated by God's grace. And you don't have to fix everything in your life and get yourself closer to the proverbial heater, but you do have to recognize and admit that your stubborn heart is just like that foil. So the first point is that all people resist the Bible's central message of grace. That is to say, we rely on our own works not God's grace to make it through the day. We rely on our own ability to be righteous, to get to the presence of God, however we might functionally define that perfect place. I can do this, is what we tell ourselves. The reality is we can't. So the second point this morning then is the Bible's central message of grace. This is what Stephen is going to unpack for the religious leaders of the day. The Bible's central message of grace. Grace what is that? It is God's unmerited favor. It's the favor of God that you couldn't earn, you would never deserve, you have no merit that could bring it about, and he says, I'm gonna give you this favor. That's what we resist. Martin Luther would comment on the importance of this. He would say, the gospel, the grace of God, is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. <laughs> he, he would do well to point out he needed to beat it into his own head first before <laughs> worrying about that last part, right? But, but it's the central article of all Christians, what the whole Bible is about, and you need it every single day. See, it's one thing to say the Bible's all about grace, but it's a whole nother thing to understand how the whole of the Bible is about grace, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to understand it. A few weeks ago, we were driving to uh, 
Alabama for spring break. We got some family down there. And so Emily and I were trying to teach our kids some car games so that we could have some peace and quiet in the front, have a conversation. And you know sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So we thought, hey, let's teach them the rhyming game. That's a classic, right? There's endless words you can rhyme with. So we teach them the rules and, and give it to Tessa. And she, she gives the first word. She's going to say a word. Her sisters are going to try to rhyme. And she says, cat. And you hear, mat, sat, nat, that. Like, all right, we might be on to something here. All right, let's try the second word. And she, she thinks, she says, camouflage. <laughs> and we kind of look at each other like, this will be interesting. And there's a, there's a pause. You can kind of tell the girls are looking at each other trying to figure out. And, and Rayanne goes, bamouflage. <laughs> and see, we taught them the rules of the game and we thought they understood how it worked. But when it came to it, they didn't actually understand under the hood how the rhyming game works. Right? And because they didn't understand how the rhyming game worked, it wasn't sufficient to carry them all the way to Alabama. And alas, we didn't get to have any conversation. So in a similar way, you could say, yeah, I could say the Bible, the message of the Bible is all about grace, but if you don't have a good understanding of how the Old Testament teaches you the message of grace, then you're not gonna have the fuel to carry you through your life with grace, just like you had to understand the game to get all the way to Alabama. Otherwise, it just kind of burns out quick and you don't have the, the fuel you need to get there, right? So Stephen walks through the Old Testament and says, here's how the whole Old Testament is about grace, now, the charges against him, we'll remember, were about righteousness, the law of Moses, and the temple. Forgiveness of God, forgiveness of God, forgiveness of sin, presence of God. And in Stephen's speech, he's going to add in a third element of the land. The land is really important to Israel. So we're going to see how all three of those point us to grace. You see, one message of the whole Bible, the message of grace. All right? So first off, the land points us to grace. It's where Stephen starts. And so what, um, what we realize here is there's a specific land that's been promised to the Israelite people, and that's the place where they will experience God's blessing when they're in the land. You go back to the very beginning. Genesis 12, promises made to Abraham. One of the first promises is, Abraham, I will give you land. And if you follow world events at all, you know that the fight for the land has been at the heart of the Israeli people for millennia. Right, I just saw this picture a week or two ago um, of them fighting to maintain the land, of Hamas on the one hand shooting off dozens of rockets and the Israeli defense system shooting off dozens back in fighting for the land. Like, how do we maintain the land? This is the place of God's blessing, and that's why it's so important to them, right? What happens then is as they fight for, the, uh, they first win the land, and then in an ongoing battle to defend the land, it becomes a matter of pride of, look what we've done. We've won and defended the land, the place of God's blessing. Look at us. We again take pride in the works of our hands. How does Stephen bring this all to bear? He's going to tell us that God brings the blessing to you before you can get yourself into the land. So the land tells a message of grace that God's not waiting for you to get to the land. He's bringing his blessing to you before you're in the land. Let's see how he unpacks that in his speech. Look at Acts 7, verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Pause. God came to Abraham. He brought a blessing to Abraham when? When he was in Mesopotamia before he was in the land. He didn't wait for Abraham to get there. Then we, we scroll down, verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. 
and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. When did God come to Joseph to bring his grace and his blessing and his favor? Not when Joseph had gotten himself together and broken free from his slavery and gotten to the land. He says, no, I'm going to bring my blessing to you before you can get to the place of blessing. Isn't that interesting? And you think about Moses. Moses in the temple courts of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's blessing comes upon him. He says, I'm going to use you to redeem my people. Moses goes out. He kills a guy. He flees to the wilderness of Midian. And what does God do? God comes to him while he's fleeing in the wilderness. He says, I'm going to bring the blessing to you before you can get to the place of blessing. Look at Acts 7.33 here. Acts 7.33, we, we see Stephen unpacking this. He says, Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. It's the burning bush encounter. And it's as if God is saying, You can't get to the holy ground, so I'm going to bring the holy ground to you. So you think that you can win the land, the place of my blessing, and you can defend the land, the place of my blessing, and I'm just telling you that I am constantly going to you before you could ever get there. It's my grace that is throughout the entire message of the Bible. It tells us we don't have to clean up our act to come to Christ. Because God didn't wait for Abraham or Joseph or Moses to get to the place of blessing. And just like that, God's not waiting for you to get yourself to the place of blessing. He's offering grace to you right now. And so what's required is that we repent of seeking our own path, our own way of blessing, and give your life to Jesus. And you might be hopeful that he would bless you, and he will. But he usually doesn't define the blessing like we would. No, the blessing we need first isn't tied to our jobs or our marriage or our finances. No, the blessing we need most is tied to a righteousness that we couldn't attain, a forgiveness we couldn't earn, and the presence of God that we could never merit. And that's what he says he'll bring. I'll give you my righteousness, I'll forgive your sins, and I'll usher you into the presence of God. The land points us to grace. But the law also points us to grace. The law points us to grace. And, and you might know a little bit about the, the law of Moses. Think, Justin, there's 600 plus laws, all these rules. How do 600 plus rules tell me about grace? Because it seems like the point is to keep the rules, not to get God's unmerited favor, right? And what, what Stephen is gonna point out here is that the religious leaders were unable to keep the law and the point was always for us to see that we couldn't keep the law and so we would need God's grace, and instead, what we do is we zoom in, we miss the forest for the trees and think, oh, here's all these rules. I wonder if I could keep them if I could merit God's grace. That's not the point at all. Look at Acts 7, 52 and 53. Very end. Stephen, again, drives home the point here. He says, starting in verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He, he says, not only did you not keep the law, you've killed every prophet and you've killed God himself. So it's not like you were almost there in keeping the law. It's not like you were just on the edge. You weren't knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Like you weren't close. The whole point is that you needed grace and you weren't looking for it. Maybe somebody might conclude, well, 
well, maybe the laws were bad. Maybe we need different laws. Let's look back, verses 41 to 43. We already read 41, but we'll read it again. Acts 7, 41 through 43. Talking about the golden calf out in the wilderness, Stephen recounts. He says, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Verse 42, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, the images you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. See, we zoom in and we see, man, they weren't keeping the law at all. The whole point was that they couldn't keep the law. And, and God is saying, like, look, guys, like, in the wilderness, you weren't close. Throughout your whole history, you weren't close. You've never been close. Just get that idea out of your mind. You're not close to keeping the rules that I've set out for you. The point is not that you could keep them, it's that you couldn't. So should the rules be set aside because you could never do it? No. We zoom out, catch the wide-angle view. We don't miss the forest for the trees. We hear what Jesus said in, in Matthew 5. Look up on the screen. You see this. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So it's not to set them aside, but to fulfill them. And when you hear fulfillment, I want you to think graduation. Think about school. The requirements laid out, you fulfill the requirements so you can graduate and go on to the next thing, right? This past week, my daughter graduated from kindergarten. Isn't she cute? I love her. <laughs> kindergarten graduation. Is kindergarten meant to be the pinnacle of your academic career? Of course not. You fulfill the requirements so you can move on to something better. Right? That's how the Old Testament law works. It was meant to show us you can't fulfill even the kindergarten requirements. But Jesus came and he did fulfill them to point you ahead to something better. A better covenant. The old covenant is the law of Moses and there's a new covenant coming that's better than anything you could imagine. Jeremiah 31 tells us about it. This is how the law is supposed to point us ahead to grace. Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Here's the new covenant, the better one we're supposed to be excited about. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, the, the Old Testament law, the, the law of Moses, the old covenant, it was meant to show us the holiness of God and our inability to keep the law. And, and just in case you thought you could maybe come close Jesus would say in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not good enough. See, there were the 600 laws, and they had a set of hundreds of laws around the laws to keep them from breaking those, and then hundreds more around the extra hundreds, and if you stayed outside of all of that, then surely you were protected against the inner 600. And Jesus says, not only do you have to be as righteous as them, you have to be way more righteous than them. Like, don't miss it. The point is not that you would keep the rules. The point is that you would see we need a better covenant than the old one. We need grace. 
What did we just sing a few minutes ago? Beautiful words saying the exact truth. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. That's some good news to be singing as a church. So not only, as the land tells us, not only do you have to clean, not have to clean up your act to come to Christ, the law tells us that you don't have to clean up your act to stay with Christ. It's his grace that's carrying you. And, and there's a danger for us here, that just as Israel would take pride in their ability to defend the land and to keep the rules, so we take pride in our abilities to keep the rules. Right, where we might look around and say, Justin, I've ordered my financial life. I save regularly, and I give generously, and I don't have all kinds of unsecured credit card debt that I shouldn't have. But as soon as I think about that, it's hard for me to not think about somebody else who's spending frivolously, and I'm like, gosh, this is what's wrong with the world, you people. Or maybe you're on the other side, man, I, I, I've screwed up my financial life. And I just feel crushed by it. I'm chained to this. I can't get out. It's so frustrating. I feel despair. And and both camps are trusting in the works of their own hands or the lack of works of their own hands and not in the grace of God. Or you might suggest, I've ordered my family life. I've kept myself from my husband or my wife. I've tried to disciple my kids. We've tried to serve at church. And I just see these people around there. They don't bring their kids to church. They're out doing whatever on the weekend. They got a guy or girl on the side. Like, I just look at them like, ah. Do you see how you're trusting in the works of your hands there? Like, you might keep the rules, but the motive and the desire is an arrogant pride looking down on somebody else. And similarly, you can, you can mess all that up and feel like you've wasted your life. Like, God could never use me. And you're trusting in your righteousness that doesn't exist. And that's why you feel despair. And you're not trusting in the grace of God that's freely offered to you too. Just admit that you're the problem and pull the tinfoil back and that heat is right there to come to you. This is how all of our lives work. And so we need the the Spirit's power to look inward and say, where am I trusting and rejoicing in the work of my hands and arrogantly resisting the Bible's central message of grace? It's a task for all of us. Just as kindergarten is meant to point to something greater, so the law was meant to point to something greater as well. Namely, that Jesus would be our righteousness. We would not be our own righteousness. And not just to, to give us a better righteousness, a better keeping of the rules, but to actually give us pure motives and desires. And when ours are not pure, we cling to his because his are always perfect. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Do you stand in him this morning? Even as a Christian, If you're trying to stand in your own righteousness, it ain't gonna work. Not gonna work at all. So there's the third point of the temple pointing us to grace. We saw the land pointed us to grace. We saw how the law pointed us to grace. But the temple points us to grace as well. And maybe you've heard a bit about the temple. Maybe you've heard on the Day of Atonement, the one day in all the year where the high priest can go in and offer sacrifices. And if, if anybody else on any other day goes in, they get struck dead on the spot. The whole temple thing doesn't feel real graceful. Or maybe you've heard about the blinding nature of the temple, where it had a a, a gold facade to it, and the the roof of it was this brilliantly white marble, so when the sun shone at a particular angle to part of the day, it was blinding to look at the gold and the marble reflecting, in essence saying, get away, the glory of the Lord is here. You can't come close. You think, temple, grace, it seems to say like you're not worthy, not you're getting grace from it. 
How does this work out? What Stephen's going to show us is that the greatest of all temples is not worthy of God's majesty. And we can't construct a temple or a life that ushers in his presence or his forgiveness. Instead, we need his grace to experience his presence and the forgiveness of sins. Let's look at Acts 7, 48 through 50. This will, will make this clear, I think. Sorry, let's, let's go back to start verse 47. It talks about Solomon building the house. Verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? See, you've got in Solomon's temple one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, one of the greatest buildings in the history of the world to ever exist. And God's saying, it's really not worth anything and it's not gonna help me out. It's not worthy of me. It's pointing ahead to something greater than even the greatest of human constructions. So that when Jesus shows up and he comes on the scene, in John 1 we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, maybe you've heard this, it's the, it's the same word as tabernacle, temple. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He templed among us. The presence of God came to us. And he was among us for a while, about 30 years. And then he would go up and he would leave and he'd say, it's better for every single one of you that I leave than that I stay put. And that's kind of remarkable to think about, isn't it? Like, you could have Jesus, your life coach, your mentor, and your counselor all at the same time. You could have him sitting beside you on the way to work, like, hey, Jesus, who do I need to talk to today? Well, here's who I had in mind. Great, I love this. You could have Jesus with you at breakfast, like, Jesus, kids are really frustrating me today, gonna need your help for grace. That's all right, I've got it, I'm with you. You could show up for a difficult decision, like, I don't know what to do, this direction, that direction. Jesus, what should I do? Go that way. You could say, Jesus, I'm feeling lonely today. And he's right there with you. Hey, that's all right. I'm the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And Jesus says, no, there's something better than having me right next to you. Look at this, John 16. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He says, see, what's better than Jesus around you is the spirit inside you. And I'm gonna bring the presence of God not merely near you in the person of Jesus, but actually place my presence inside you in the Holy Spirit. So the temple is to point ahead and say, yes, this temple you built isn't sufficient, so I'm just gonna bring my presence to you. I'm gonna bring forgiveness of sin to you. And whereas the temple could offer a short-term forgiveness of sin, you had to keep offering sacrifices over and over. It's good that sins could be covered but there's a better way. Hebrews 9 would tell us about the better way for this sacrifice to be offered. It says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Do you notice My body's the greater tent, not, not the one that existed before, not the tabernacle, not the temple. Mine, my body's the better one. We then read that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Wow. He brings his presence to you, puts it inside of you, 
offers you an eternal forgiveness, not one where you have to continually come back groveling, seeking forgiveness again and again, like in the old temple. It says, no, the temple itself points you ahead to grace. So that not only do you not have to clean up your act to come to Christ, and not only do you not have to keep up your act to stay with Christ, you also don't have to build a life that can eternally be with Christ. What do we just sing a couple minutes ago, I love, I love the lyrics of our songs that teach this theology. It says, those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Guys, if Dostoevsky was right and beauty will save the world, then here in Stephen's speech, we find a beauty that will save the world. The beauty of the story, that God doesn't wait for you to get to the place of blessing, he graciously brings it to you. And he doesn't wait for you, angrily wondering why you can't keep the rules and why you can't keep them with perfectly pure motives. No, he graciously promises to make you a new person because you could never invent a moral improvement plan that would work. And doesn't wait for you to build a life that can be with him for eternity. No, for those who repent of their sin and place their faith in him, he graciously secures an eternal redemption and the promise of an eternal dwelling in his presence. A heaven that's really worth attaining and one that will always satisfy. So as we start to wrap this up, let me show you one final thing from the passage about this beauty of grace that can save your soul. Look at Acts 7.20. Acts 7.20. We read this. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Why was Moses beautiful in God's sight? Is it because he was the GQ man that had those curly locks and the perfectly trimmed beard? No, I don't think so. That's not the kind of beauty God is looking for here. Why was he beautiful in God's sight? Guys, because God loves to deliver his people. He loves for his grace to break through your hard, rebellious heart and to deliver you from your sin with a message of grace. And Moses would do that. And while Moses brought grace, the unmerited favor of God in significant ways, a true and better Moses, a true and better prophet, Jesus would come to bring unmatched grace to you. Whereas Moses would leave the pleasures of royal Egypt and they were significant, Jesus would leave infinitely more pleasures in eternity and heaven to come and deliver you. And while Moses would go into the wilderness for 40 years and then come back to deliver his people, Jesus would go into the wilderness for 40 days and not eat anything at all and then come back to deliver his people. Whereas Moses would lead his people out with wonders and signs, Jesus would do the greatest wonder, the greatest sign, and rise from the dead in order to lead his people out. Whereas Moses would rule and redeem his people, he wouldn't quite get them to the promised land, would he? No, but Jesus has come and says, I will redeem you and I will perfectly rule over you. I'll never have fits of rage like Moses did. And I'll get you all the way to the promised land. 
I'm a better ruler and I'm a better redeemer than even the great one, Moses. Verse 38 says Moses received living oracles. Here's the instructions on how to do it the right way. And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna bring you more than living oracles. I am the living oracles. And I'm gonna actually write them on your heart, not just these weak little tablets of stone that can be broken and thrown away. Guys, this is the beautiful message of grace of the entire Bible. And you might start to say, Justin, it seems like the same thing week in, week out. Grace, grace, grace. That's, move on to something else. 300 years ago, George Whitfield was preaching some revival sermons, mid-1700s. And uh, the first night, he preached a sermon called, You Must Be Born Again. Good start to revival week. That's kind of how you're supposed to do it, right? The second night, he preached a sermon titled, You Must Be Born Again. Well, all right, make sure everybody heard the message. The third night, he preached a sermon titled, You Must Be Born Again. So afterwards, the pastors brought him in, like, George, we're glad you're here. We want you to preach, but why do you keep preaching the message, you must be born again? And he said, because you must be born again. (laughs) Why do we keep preaching grace? Because grace is what you need. And you do have a heart and a rebellious heart that always resists the Bible's central message of grace. And the only thing that can break down the hardness of your heart and mine is the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So the message is always and only Jesus. You need his grace to fuel your life. And like my old house, you could try to do it your own way and find the heating system is lacking. And you might get along for a bit, either Christian or or non-Christian, but ultimately, any fuel for your life that isn't the grace of God is gonna come up short. So we're gonna go to communion in a second. And and just stick with me here. Before you you get to all that, I want you to think about the grace of God on your behalf that Jesus brings the blessing to you, that he fulfills the law for you and gives you his righteousness, that rather than having you build some temple where you can experience his presence and forgiveness of sins, he offers that to you right where you're at right now. Think about the wonder of that. And think about the corners of your heart where you're rejoicing in the work of your hands, your own righteousness, or you're despairing over the righteousness you don't have. Two sides of the same coin that don't trust the grace of God and recognize that you are just like all other humans. You arrogantly resist the Bible's central message of grace. And just like the Israelites, you wanna take pride in the work of your hands. So we repent of our righteousness, and we trust in Christ's righteousness, because his grace is the fuel that brings us to Christ, keeps us with Christ, and secures our eternity in Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, it is so hard for us to look inside and see the arrogance that we have, to see how we are resistant to your grace. Oh, but we need your grace even to see the dark corners of our heart. We ask you would show these things to us. Give us the grace even right now to repent, to not preach to ourselves how good we are or that most of the time we're doing a pretty good job, but to fall entirely on your grace. Thank you that grace is available. What a wonderful gift it is, a needed gift. We couldn't live without it. Bring us, God, we pray, to a place of wonder at your beauty. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.